Progress with me, Nadia Hanumarals, and Antonio Urdaneta. This podcast is for everyone and anyone interested in learning about the latest trending topics in workplace law. Just before we start, we'll do a disclaimer. This podcast provides legal information. It is not legal advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. We're employment and labor lawyers, including human rights in the workplace. I focus on assisting small and mid-sized workplaces, usually one to 250 employees. And Nadia helps both employers and employees. Today, I'll argue with Nadia from the employer's perspective. Well, Nadia will argue with me from the employee's side. As usual, we'll give you a background to our argument before diving into the case we've selected for you today. Don't forget to listen to our previous episodes focus on COVID-19, work refusals, and infectious disease emergency leave, or IDEL. Today, we have something different. What is it, Nadia? Uh, today, we're going to be talking about termination clauses in general and the recent uh, Waxdale decision in particular. And the reason we wanted to interrupt our quote-unquote regular programming of COVID-19 is because this is a pretty significant decision. We think it's going to have a lot of real-life consequences for both employers and employees in Ontario. I'm sure you're seeing uh, these consequences as well. I'm definitely seeing them play out in my practice already. We wanted to make sure that our listeners are updated on this new decision and what it can mean for them. So let's start by explaining what a termination clause is, what's its purpose. A termination clause is a legal tool. When used properly, employers control termination costs. Consequently, the business predicts better its operation budget by planning its payroll costs with more accuracy. In Canada, you know this, Nadia, there is no termination at will, like in some states south of the border. But in Canada, employers are allowed to terminate an employee at any time and for no reason, as long as the decision is not discriminatory or made in reprisal. At the moment of termination, though, the employer must give the employee sufficient notice to the employee for him, her, or seer to make arrangements to find a new job. This could happen in one of two ways. One, working during the notice period, or two, pay instead of that notice. But more important than whether it is a working notice or payment instead of that notice, the cost will be controlled by its length. And the length calculation could be sourced in one of two ways as well. One, based on a valid termination clause in a written employment agreement linked or connected with minimum standards laws, in, a, in the case of Ontario, the Employment Standards Act 2000 or ESA, which is a more predictable and a shorter length, or two, when there is no such clause and it's based in judges-made law or known as common law, where the length becomes unpredictable. Put it in a week's, month's perspectives, using the example of Ontario's laws and considering only the length of the termination notice or pay instead of that notice, agreements that manage to limit this length to the ESA caps the notice at eight weeks. You could have an employee with 10 years seniority earning $50,000 a year. That employee would be entitled to eight weeks notice or payout of roughly $8,000. The same circumstances with an employee without a termination clause it will get close to a year notice period or a payout of over 45000 So there's Nadia, a pretty uh, big difference there. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a big difference. We both agree that a well-drafted and regularly updated termination clause in employment agreements are key to control business costs. Also, the validity of a termination clause and consequently the length, like longer length or shorter length of the notice for pay is perhaps the most argued element in employment-related litigation 
And it's why we're talking about this today. Yeah, so I wanted to get back to something you just mentioned, which is you said the termination clause has to be linked with or connected with minimum standards. I would phrase it more as the termination clause has to at least match minimum standards. But in in any case, that principle comes from a 1992 Supreme Court of Canada decision called, I'm going to butcher this, Mockdinger and HOJ Industries. So in that case, there were two employees who worked at a car dealership. They both signed employment contracts. One employee had a contract that said he could be terminated without notice. So no notice, no pay. The other employee had a contract that said he could be terminated on two weeks notice. Now, the problem is that the Employment Standards Act at the time, as it does now, had its own provisions on notice. And at the time, both of those employees were entitled to four weeks notice each. So the employer fires the employees and despite what their contract said, the employer paid them four weeks notice each because that's what the Employment Standards Act said. The employer is probably thinking to themselves, you know, I, I know I messed up on the employment contracts, but I paid them what the Employment Standards Act says, no harm, no foul. That is not what ended up happening. The employees sued because even though they got what the ESA said they should have gotten, the contract provided for less than that. So they were saying they should get common law reasonable notice. And as Antonio said before, you know, the difference can be pretty significant. Again, these employees have been working at the dealership for seven years. According to the ESA, they were only entitled to four weeks. Under common law, again, it's quite unpredictable, but, you know, I, I would put that number at anywhere between five to eight months. So there's a, obviously a lot of incentive to to sue and try to get a better deal. So what ended up happening in this case is the trial judge found for the employees, the employer appealed and the court of appeal sided with the employer and then it reaches the Supreme Court in 1992. I've done enough talking uh, for now, Antonio. Can you bring us home on what the Supreme Court said? Sure, you're going to leave me the difficult part. All right. So the Supreme Court of Canada went back and sided with the employees and said that if an employment agreement has a termination clause that gives an employee a different length of a reason, of reasonable notice, that length, which is what you're saying, Nadia, that length must be at least equal to the minimum notice set out in the Employment Standards Act. And if that's not the case, then the court will declare the termination clause unenforceable and award the employee reasonable notice, not under the ESA on a week's basis, but under the common law, which is usually under month's basis. Even though it seems that courts are looking at ESA minimum standard, like in in Matchinger, they are actually looking, in my opinion, to the freedom parties have to control their business through contractual principles privately. And I appreciate that freedom. So the length of sufficient notice is a common law presumption or a default that suggests that when there is no meeting of the minds about what would happen at the moment of termination, precedents about length would apply. So common law would apply. All of this, again, influenced by by contract principles, not the ESA. But this presumption can be rebutted if the employment agreement has a clear termination clause that specifies a different notice period and complies with minimum standards in ESA. So getting back to Matchinger and and looking at the termination clauses from that angle, the ESA, the consequence is that any attempt to contract out of the ESA will be null and void. Those contracts that said that upon termination, the employees would get less than what they were entitled to under the ESA, 
it will be indeed an attempt to contract out. So the whole clause is thrown out. It doesn't matter that at the time of termination, like in the case of Matchinger, the employer paid out what the ESA said. The main takeaways here are, if the termination clause fails to comply with the minimum ESA notice periods, the whole clause will be null and void, and the employee will be entitled to come low reasonable notice. What do you think, Nadia? Well, first, I think it's funny that I say Machtinger, you say Machtinger. Mr. Totally. Mr. Machtinger or Machtinger, if you're listening or, or if your children are listening, please call in and tell us how to <laughs> pronounce your last name. Totally. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> so that decision came out in 1992, and employers learned how to draft termination clauses properly. They were never litigated again. Uh, lawyers all around Ontario learned how to draft termination clauses and how to pronounce Mr. Mottinger's name. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's, uh, that's the end of the podcast. There's nothing much to talk about. Sure. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, there have been hundreds of decisions since Mottinger on the enforceability of termination clauses because it, it can be this all or nothing proposition, right? If you're successful, you could be entitled to up to 24 months notice, uh, maybe even more um, in some limited cases, depending on your length of service versus that eight weeks cap in the ESAs. It's quite you know, quite a stark difference. Mm -hmm. So as we've said a couple of times, you, you can have a termination clause. It just has to at least meet the ESA minimums to be enforceable. So I'm sure our employer and management side listeners are thinking, well, how hard can that be? Just go to the ESA, copy whatever it says on notice into your employment contract, and that'll be that. The problem is employee side counsel like myself and, and to some degree Antonio will look at a termination clause with a magnifying glass. And if if I find a loose thread, I'm going to pull at it. So, Antonio, can you expand on what it means for a termination clause to be compliant with the ESA? Yes, Nadia. So a termination clause must include a few elements from the ESA and to a certain extent, contractual principles for the termination clause to be valid. And we're not going to discuss all the elements in this episode, but we can say, for example, that if the employer focuses only in that termination clause based on wages during the length of the notice period or pay instead of that notice, we can safely say that the termination clause will be thrown out. Similarly, if a termination clause is ambiguous, meaning that it has two possible interpretations, the clause can be thrown out as well. So based on the ESA, to give an idea, clause may have to include wages, contributions to benefits, severance pay. And on the contract side, the clause must be clear, unambiguous, consider future compliance with, with ESA and others. Mm -hmm. So the problem is, as an employer, if you're drafting your own termination clause and you either overlook something from the ESA or the way that you phrase the termination clause uh, could lead to the interpretation that you were excluding something from the ESA, the, the termination clause could be found to be unenforceable. And the, the reason for that is there is this doctrine called contra proferentum, which essentially says if there's a clause that is so ambiguous, it has at least two interpretations, the judge should interpret it against the party that drafted it. And 99% of the times, that's going to be the employer. So I think we've set enough groundwork to dive into this recent Waxdale decision. But before we do that, I can just tell by the way Antonio is breathing into the mic that he's itching to tell me how he feels about this and how unfair it is to employers. Am I uh, guessing right, Antonio? You opened the door, Nadia. Now <laughs> Pandora's box. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> so yes, uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity, Nadia. I have two favorite lenses to use laws. One is law and feminism, which is not part of our topic today, but the other is law and economics, which has to do with our topic today. So imagine you have small businesses who, who want to do great, who want to comply with the law, who do everything within their resources and beyond to do the right thing. They plan, they organize their workforce, they're subjected to multiple sources of inspections like the Ministry of Labor, CRA, Pay Equity Commission, and on and on and on. And they survived, they learn, they feel secure and inspired to continue the good work. They even have an employment agreement in writing with what seems to be a value termination clause. After years of challenges, one person, one employee goes to a lawyer like us, and that lawyer with the magnifying glasses that you mentioned and popcorn idea style builds an argument that the clause is invalid. Now, the employer who was working hard and smart needs to spend all its likely two years revenue to defend itself and probably lose, like it happened in Matchinger. Look, travel level courts says employees are right. Appeal court says employers right. Supreme Court of Canada says employees right. This is Matchinger. Or here in, uh, with Waxdale, which we will talk in a few seconds, the without cost termination clause is valid, but you know what? The with cost termination clause is invalid. Therefore, all of it is thrown out. Again, courts can do more to contribute with economic predictability in a compliant environment like we are for small and mid-sized businesses to control budget better, which I believe will contribute to managing expectations better and reduce frustrations with the system better. <laughs> Otherwise, we're leaving the backbone of our communities and society to disengage. Disengage from hiring individuals, to distrust the workforce, to automate faster and reduce the workforce faster. So my point is, we need to be more predictable about termination clauses in our, in our core system to contribute with achieving an economic growth. That's, that's my rant for today. Thank you, <laughs> We should have included a disclaimer at the beginning. Like, listeners, feel free to uh, fast forward two minutes if you... <laughs> 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 no, I, I think, I mean, you bring up some interesting points, and I, I don't necessarily disagree. And I, I know your example was imagine a, an employer that is compliant and that wants to do the right thing. And I can imagine how for that, and, and I've worked with employers like that, um, I can, and I know how frustrating it can be for them to kind of operate in this system of, of uncertainty and unpredictability. But I, I guess I would, I would just say there are employers out there that aren't that kind of example that your that your employer is based on that do know what the ESA says and that try to cut corners as much as they can and and that try to contract out of the ESA especially in industries where they can be reasonably certain that employees are vulnerable or unsophisticated and aren't really going to be seeking legal advice or even if they know to seek a legal advice can't afford it so you know there there are employers out there and I think that that is the harm that the that the courts are trying to remedy and the only way they can do that is through decisions that send a clear message that there are very serious consequences to not abiding by uh, employment standards because I think it was wooden dealy that that's a pretty recent decision as well that said well if the if the only consequence for drafting a clause that is not compliant with the ESA is that you then have to just pay what the ESA says, 
then there's not going to be any incentive for employers to to try to do a, a good job with their termination clauses. So, but I do take your point that there's employers of all with all kinds of styles and with all kinds of values and how they value compliance can differ and it can be very hard for those employers out there that are that are doing their best and that feel that predictability has been lost in this system that we have where I've read court uh, cases from the same court level like from both from the Ontario Court of Appeal where you cannot reconcile them like I, I don't understand the it, it, I'm having a stroke just trying to, to explain <laughs> how, how difficult some of these decisions are to reconcile. And that's coming from a legal perspective. So I, mm -hmm. I can't even, you know, and then when you have to try to explain that to a client, it's just, uh, anyways, uh, we could argue about this all day. And in fact, some might say we've made our living out of obsessing and agonizing over termination clauses. So let's just dive into the main course, which is the Waxdale decision. Do you want to tell Tell us about that. Yes, and by the way, thank you for recognizing my point, and I also understand your point. So it is evidently a very challenging position that, that we're in, and we need to make the best of what we have so far. So Waxdale, the, the decision for those of you who want to see the decision um, online, Waxdale and Swegon North America Inc. That's S-W-E-G-O-N, North America Inc., it was released dated June 17, 2020. So it's a pretty recent decision, the appeal court decision. The motion summary judgment that we will talk about a little bit today is from 2019. This is a classic case, Nadia, where we litigate about the enforceability of the termination clauses. But we don't have this termination clause or clauses to make up a full opinion, the particular one in Waxdale. But usually, I don't know, Pearl, you've seen the same thing, that employment agreements would have two clauses. One that, that applies with when there is just cause for termination and one that deals with when there is no just cause or without cause termination. Yeah, so that, that's a good point, actually. We should probably explain very quickly what the difference is um, in these two scenarios. So in most cases, employers need to provide notice of termination. But if the employee is guilty of misconduct, the employer may be justified in ending the employment relationship without any notice. So some misconduct is just so severe that the idea is, you forfeit your right to notice. Like you, you had to have known that if you engaged in that misconduct, it, it would lead to immediate termination. Mm -hmm. um, so that that concept is referred to as just cause. And we're not going to get into what kind of misconduct is just cause because that could be its own episode. I'm sure we'll address that at some point. But all you need to understand for today's podcast is, as Antonia said, employers sometimes include two clauses one that deals with how much pay an employee is entitled to when there is no cause, and another uh, that deals with how much pay they're entitled to when there is just cause. Thank you, Nadia. Thank you for clarifying that point. Getting back to Waxdale, Mr. Waxdale sued the business for, for wrongful dismissal and used an expedited procedure to obtain a decision. We call it summary judgment, stating the entitlement to damages because the business did not provide him with reasonable notice of dismissal. By the way, summary judgments are only for those cases where we can see that rights are there and there's no reason for the regular lengthier procedures we have in our system, but basically the court orders financial compensation or like in the case of Waxdale, it doesn't. Waxdale lost the summary judgment. The summary judgment decision maker judge 
dismiss the motion for that summary judgment and Waxdale's action altogether. It awarded the business $16,000 for cause of this action. The decision maker then concluded that the termination of employment with notice provision is a stand-alone, unambiguous, and enforceable clause. So the primary issue on the motion, the summary judgment motion, was the legal effect of the written employment contract between the parties. Mr. Waxdale said that the termination clause in his employment contract was void because it was an attempt, what we were talking about before, it was an attempt to contract out of the minimum standards of the ESA. The business, on the other hand, said that the termination for cause, not the without cause, but the termination for cause provision in the contract was void because it violated the ESA. So the business agreed with that. But it argued that the termination of employment with notice, so the without cause one provision, the clause in the provision in the agreement was valid. And because it was not alleging cause, it could rely on the, on the without notice provision. That was the issue. And the judge in the summary judgment motion sided with the employer, the business. And then it went to the appeal court who sided with the employee, Mr. Waxdale, and said that the motion judge erred in law in his interpretation of the employment contract. The termination provisions, said the court, are unenforceable because they violate the ESA. They allowed the appeal, they set aside the motion judge's order and ordered that the matter be sent back to the motion judge to determine how much Mr. Waxdale was entitled for damages. But in particular, after uh, when I was reading the appeal decision, I have an issue with paragraph 10 in particular, Nadia. Maybe I will open a parenthesis here to, to mention what my issue is with that. Maybe I'm reading it wrong, but it seems that they are saying that severability clauses are unenforceable in employment agreements, which creates even more economic uncertainty. Sever a severability clause is something, usually at the end of the contract, it'll say something like, if any clause is found to be unenforceable, you sever that clause from the employment agreement and everything else is valid. So, so that's kind of the context for what you're about to say, right? Correct. Thank you for giving me that context. Exactly. So a severability clause, we don't know if this contract, uh, Waxdale Employment Agreement had a severability clause, but a severability clause would say, well, if the termination with cause is found to be invalid, the because of the severability clause that, that you explained, Nadia, because of the severability clause, the termination without cause will continue to be valid. That's an instrument that we use in employment agreements. From this paragraph 10, it says that, I'm quoting, an employment agreement must be interpreted as a whole and not on a piecemeal basis. Finish quoting. What that suggests to me is that I need to read from clause one to the last clause as a whole, not in a piecemeal basis. And the second sentence in that same paragraph, it says that it is irrelevant whether the termination provisions are found in one place in the agreement or separated, or whether the provisions are by their terms otherwise linked. And to be fair, I'm, I'm taking those two sentences out of the full context of the paragraph 10, because as you mentioned, this will be an episode on its own. But it seems that this paragraph is suggesting that we need to read an employment agreement altogether and we cannot use a severability clause. Anyways, back to you, Nadia. 
Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting point. I actually, I hadn't thought of it. Let's wrap this up. I think our listeners are, are getting quite tired of hearing our voices. So um, I want the I joke. The, I want the joke. <laughs> the, so let's just say as a summary, the main takeaway from the Court of Appeals decision is that the employment agreement must be interpreted as a whole, not on a piecemeal basis. And we'll have a whole other episode addressing that. So the correct way to approach a termination clause is as a whole, even if they are addressing separate scenarios, one without cause, one with cause, you look at the termination provisions as a whole and whether they violate the ESA. So I think that's enough legal talk for now. Any parting words, any tips you can offer our, our employer site listeners that I'm sure are banging their heads on the walls trying to make <laughs> sense of this, Antonio? <laughs> well, basically, Nadia, I'm hearing that what we said at the beginning of the episode, a well-drafted and regularly updated termination clause in employment agreements are key to control business costs. So if employers don't have termination clauses or they are outdated, contact your trusted employment and labor lawyer or any, or any of us and have peace of mind or as much as possible, at least. Yeah, if your, if your termination clause was drafted right after Mottinger came out, you are in trouble. There have been <laughs> several updates uh, in the law, and uh, you should definitely reach out. I think if we have employee listeners, what I would say, and, and this is what I meant when I said I've seen this in my practice already, employers are rectifying their termination clauses by providing employees with new contracts that address this Waxfield decision. And so, and I think in the context of COVID too, you have employees that are on leave and they're being, or, or on layoff, they're being brought back and they're being given a, an employment contract to, um, you know, to return to work. Just important to know that it's not just, the contract is not just because you're being asked to return to work. It, it, it could be because they're trying to remedy previous gaps in their termination clauses. So again, if you are presented with a new contract, it's good to reach out to an employment lawyer that's going to pull out their magnifying glass and uh, see if there's any issues with it. So if you've made it this far, as Antonio mentioned, we uh, we like to reward our listeners with a joke. And I believe uh, it's my turn today. Reward. Reward is a big word. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Go ahead, so, Nadia. Antonio, uh, did you know that before I was a lawyer, I actually worked in a bank? You did? Yeah, but I was fired um, from the bank. Why? Uh, well, a, a customer asked me to check their balance, and I did. I pushed them over. <laughs> well, that actually, that actually made me laugh. First one. <laughs> yeah, Qu quote, yeah, reward and joke are uh, very loosely interpreted terms. You've seen these <laughs> podcasts, yes. If you are an employer that's in desperate need of uh, getting your termination clauses revised, if you're an employee that's been presented with a contract recently, you can reach out to us at antonio at workplacelegal.ca and uh, you can reach me at nadia at wittenlublin.com, W-H-I-T-T-E-N. L-U-B-L-I-N.com. Thank you, Nadia. You listen to another episode of Work in Progress with me, Antonio Urdaneta, and Nadia Halum Arauz, a podcast for everyone and anyone interested in learning about the latest trending topics in workplace law.
Listen to this and other episodes online, Spotify, Apple, and in any other platform where you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to share it with others who are interested in employment, labor, and human rights topics. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode.